Now that the party is over, why don't we sit down and have a little chat? Post drink with Becky's not drinking tonight. Hello and welcome once again to the podcast that is all about raw, real and fresh stories about sobriety. Becky's not drinking tonight. My name is Beck, and we are back with episode two of Post Drinking, a new segment where I sit down and have a chat with some of the incredible people I've met along my journey of sobriety. As always, a warning that this episode will contain swearing as well as sensitive topics such as mental health, suicide and alcohol consumption. Today, I'm really excited to introduce to you a woman who I met a bit over two years ago now, who has inspired me to stay sober in order to look after my own mental health and the impact it has on my family. Please welcome to the podcast, actress Melita St. Just, who you might recognize from Wentworth. Melita is here today to have a chat to us about alcohol and mental health, and most importantly, the impact of both of these on families. So without further ado, please welcome Melita. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on board and have a chat about what got us talking in the first place a bit over two years ago. So I'll just give the listeners a bit of a background. So we actually met at a mutual friend's wedding. It was really chilled and relaxed, and it was at this great Greek restaurant. And yeah, and I think we struck up a conversation later in the evening and you noticed that I wasn't drinking I think and you checked up on me to make sure I was doing okay because I, I was probably one of the only sober people there at that point so yeah I noticed that you weren't drinking I think by that point I probably had a couple of people try to offer me drinks or something and I was just a bit like oh, I'm just and I did say I'm not drinking because I'm trying to look after my mental health and when I drink I usually get quite depressed or quite anxious and And then, yeah, you discussed your brother, Joe, who I believe had passed away only a year before that wedding, I think. We were coming up to the second anniversary of his suicide. This week is his fourth anniversary on Boxing Day of losing him to suicide. So when you said that you weren't drinking to protect your mental health, that was something that I was interested in because obviously it's it's a topic and it's a It's impacted me and it's impacted my family and many, many friends of Joseph's as well. I don't know. I think every time I see someone who's not drinking or they're doing something, they're making a stand to not do something that they know is going to impact them, whether it's gambling or drinking, it means a lot to me um, and it interests me. Like, what is it that keeps you going? What's the strength? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you and Joseph's relationship. I know you come from quite a big family like myself and yeah, so you were quite close, obviously. Yeah, we. Um, I'm the eldest of seven children. So we grew up in quite a strict Christian family. I'm the eldest and Joseph was second. He's 22 months younger than me. So I have, including Joe, four brothers and two sisters. And Joe and I were best friends growing up. And um, we shared a room together, I think, until I think until I was like 14. And gosh, he was a terror to share a room with. <laughs> <laughs> And then we moved into a we moved into a slightly bigger house, but our parents actually pulled us out of school and we were homeschooled. Um, I was homeschooled from year seven to oh, year wow. twelve. So our relationship was a lot closer than I guess your standard siblings because we spent every day mm. together. We did our schoolwork together, we played together, we did all our extracurricular activities. Mm. We all did everything. So if one of us did guitar, we all learnt guitar. If one of us learnt piano, we all learnt piano. 
So it must have been hard trying to differentiate yourselves within such a big family. Yeah, you know, being such in such a large family, kind of all looking for the limelight a little bit. So Joseph was incredibly smart. In fact, he had an IQ of 167. So I'm glad that's not me. I'm <laughs> glad I didn't have that IQ. Yeah, so he's a member of Mensa. So for those highly smart people. But with that comes challenges. You never quite fit in mm. with other people. Probably a lot of expectations placed on him as well with that intelligence. I think when you hear someone's really smart, I think a lot of society expects great things from them. But it's like whose definition of great mm. is that, you know? Well, we were very lucky. Like everything that we did, we were encouraged and like pretty much everything Joseph did, he was good at. You said you grew up in quite a strict Christian family. So what was the impact of alcohol within that family? Did you guys ever have any access to it or was it a big no-no that no one ever touches, we don't talk about? There was always alcohol in our family. Um, it was always mm-hmm. readily available. I mean, I think we were... I remember, you know, Mm -hmm. tasting wine as a kid. I remember going on picnics and there always being, you know, mum and dad always having a wine. It was the 80s. They had one of those um, plastic hard Mm -hmm. cask boxes. So you put like the cask Mm -hmm. of wine in a plastic box. So I don't know. So it didn't look as, so it was protected. I don't know. Um, So there's always wine available. I don't really remember beer being around much as a kid, but I remember, you know, being allowed to taste it from the cup as a Mm. kid I don't really remember my parents getting drunk I remember there'd Mm. always be wine at dinner and family Mm. gatherings and uh, that sort of thing and or if I went to our grandparents house there was always a bottle of wine or a bottle of sparkling or something being cracked so alcohol was really normalized within your family was there any times where you thought hey this seems a bit weird or this doesn't seem right I think the first time I ever thought the alcohol situation was a bit strange was we did a trip as a family across the Nullarbor I would have been like 13. Mm. Granny, dad and mum would crack a bottle of pink champagne at breakfast as we're pulling the tent down. Mm. It was holidays. Like that wasn't something that would happen in normal times. But I remember thinking it's a bit early to be drinking wine. And they would say things like, oh, you know, it's, you know what time it is? It's one o'clock. So, Mm. but I don't ever really remember them being drunk or it was normalized in our family, I think, to have a drink. And so did your parents ever have the discussion with you that, you know, this is when it's acceptable to drink alcohol and this is when it's not, or was it just something that you learned yourself? It was something more, I think that was spoken about, like, like when we were in primary school. So like it was a Christian primary school. So I think we learned a bit more about that there. And most of it was like, you know, like Jesus drunk wine. So, you know, we if Jesus did it, it's <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> it's okay. So, like, as young kids, did you ever get the temptation to just have a little bit of what mum and dad or granny and pop were having? I mean, we were naughty. Like, mum and dad used to make Baileys at Christmas time and they put it right up the top in the top cupboard. As soon as they go out to do, like, Christmas shopping, Joseph and I mm-hmm. and my sister Nanny would climb up the cupboard and we'd pull it all down and we'd take a little bit out of the top of each bottle. And, like, we would have been, I would have been 13, so they were all younger than me. Mm-hmm. And it's just because it tasted good. It was, you know, Irish cream, so it was delicious. Or the port cask. There was a port cask in the lounge room that Joseph would stand under and I would turn the knob and then turn it off and then I'd stand under it and he'd turn it on and we'd just drink the port out of the cask. So there was never any real restriction placed on alcohol. I think until we got to the point we could go to parties. And do you remember the first time that you got drunk? I remember the first time I got drunk and went to a friend's 18th birthday and Joseph had to come as my chaperone because I was, I think, 17. I remember the first time Joseph got drunk as well. (laughs) He'd had 
pineapple cruises or something and he told dad that he had food poisoning so dad's like you know what's good for food poisoning wheat bix and he took him in some wheat bix mm-hmm. so i don't think we were ever really we, we weren't allowed to take drink to parties i think maybe i copped it more than the rest mm-hmm. of them i think joseph probably got away with a little bit more being male but yeah i I certainly wasn't allowed to. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds very similar to my situation with my elder brother. We're about the same distance apart, just under two years. He was allowed to get drunk and get away with murder. You know, he quite often told my dad he had green cordial poisoning. Like, that's not a thing. But my dad was like, poor son, you know, the minute I got drunk, I was always very honest with my dad, but I seem to face more punishment so did you and joseph when you were i suppose Mm. discovering partying and alcohol did you quite often go to parties together or did you kind of do your separate thing joe had a different group of friends to me we had a few mutual friends but Mm -hmm. i was very focused on my you know studying and my parents marriage broke down and like i needed to support the family a lot more because my younger brothers were quite young Mm -hmm. and joe actually ended up going and living with our father did you feel like you had to lead a healthy example for your younger siblings in relation to i suppose alcohol consumption Yeah, like I think I would let my hair down on the weekends that my siblings would be at my dad's place. So while you're, you know, helping look after the family, helping your mum out and Joseph's living with your dad, do you know what their relationship was like? Yeah, so I think that they were really close. Mm -hmm. When my father remarried, Joseph was his best man. Joe loved dad very much. You know, there was probably a bit of drinking that they did together Mm. and I think that Joseph probably pushed the boundaries with dad a lot and it was probably easier for dad to say oh yeah you know but I also think that Joseph would push the boundaries anyway like he would have pushed the boundaries he would have invited people over and dad probably would have had no say if he was off at a friend's place dad might have gone to Canberra for work or something and I know Joseph would have parties which I mean I think most teenagers would take advantage of in the same situation I suppose at some point you must have noticed that the drinking was less about partying and more about a coping mechanism was there a particular point in time where you noticed that Joseph's mental health was starting to deteriorate? Yeah, really sadly, he went through a a marriage breakdown and, you know, different people do things to cope Mm -hmm. differently. Joseph had children quite young. He had at, I think, 20. And then a couple of years later, I mean, I'm 37, I can't imagine. When when the marriage broke down, the impact that that would have had on such a young person. Yeah, I mean, it's such a young age to get married, have children, and then to have that, I suppose, fall apart. It would take a really big emotional toll on anyone, let alone someone who's still trying to figure out who they are in this world. So while the marriage is breaking down, where were you in this picture? When the marriage first broke down, I I went up to Joe and I, you know, I checked in on him and I I helped him clean up his house and I helped Mm. him do things. And I just was always look, and I still do it, but I was always looking after everyone and trying to fix everything and make everyone okay. And yeah, I definitely think that's a trait of being the eldest sister in the family. I quite often find myself in that position too. So, what happened after the marriage broke down? When the marriage broke down, he admitted himself to hospital. Mm. Because he admitted himself to hospital, he lost his security clearance, which meant he lost his job, which meant he had no income. Everything was falling apart. 
And then I went up to visit him one weekend and he like had hollowed out loaves of bread and put bottles of vodka in a loaf of bread. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. He was paranoid. Like he had video cameras up everywhere. I think the thing was he was really worried that he was not going to have his kids in his life anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Joseph also suffered from intense migraine to the point where he'd be like vomiting from them. There was a doctor who prescribed him medication and I think Joseph initially perhaps developed dependency to some of those migraine medications and those combined with alcohol were not good for him. Wow, that would have been really confusing and intense. Were there any other particular times that really made you question if he had this under control or if this was an issue that maybe you need to take a bit more seriously? The first time I really got how bad it was, was my 30th birthday. He came down and I went to help him go get a suit for court for his divorce and, and he stayed the night at my house. He said to hide all the alcohol, like get rid of it, just make sure it's nowhere to be found. He found every single goddamn bottle right. and drank every single bottle of alcohol and there was dirt like on the sheets and everything. And I was like, what's going on? Like, what did you do last night? And he just looked at me really sheepish and he's like, oh, I found the alcohol and I buried the bottles in the backyard. And I was like, what? Buried the bottles in the backyard? What do you mean you buried the bottles in the backyard? Anyway, he'd found everything. Like I'd hidden it in like the powder room underneath the sink mm. and he'd found it. I just remember thinking like, that's not okay. And then calling an intervention with my family and saying, you know, Joseph needs help. Mm -hmm. And so when you called that intervention, did other members of the family speak up and also bring their stories of things that he had done that seemed a bit out of character or a bit odd? Yeah, there'd been a few things that he'd been doing around that time. And I think it was related to the combination of the alcohol and the medication that he was taking because um, he also had insomnia, which is something that right. kind of runs in our family as well. Yeah, so there are a few things that people had brought up that he had done that were not okay. And so do you know if any of his doctors had also picked up on this being a problem or was he very good at hiding it from them? No, he was very open with it. He would tell them. He actually okay. put himself on a, a list to not be prescribed that, that drug anymore. He wanted to be okay, like Joe right. wanted to be okay. So he got well and there was a period of time there mm. where he was okay. Like he was doing really well. Mm. He got into his cycling. He was happy. He wasn't drinking. He was sober because mm. he was exercising. His headaches had got better. He had a business. Mm. His business was going well. So what changed? What happened? What made him suddenly go downhill again? Yeah, so... He met someone on Tinder or somewhere and it was an incredibly unhealthy relationship and Joseph's mental health declined like massively in like within six months. Um, that person reintroduced alcohol back into his life and um, like really unsupportive of the situation. He was ringing me every day. He was ringing me. His thing would be to ring me at lunchtime and we'd speak on my lunch break. Yeah, it was pretty full on and he was not happy and he was asking me to help him. Right. Yeah. Was there anything that you and your family could do? Oh, gosh, I cannot tell you how many different places we rang in Bendigo and around um, central Victoria, all the way down to Ballarat, right. up to Wangaratta, Benalla, Wodonga, trying to get him into mm. some form of a rehab or something. But there was such huge wait lists to get into anywhere. So that was the thing. He would call me every day and we would talk every mm. day and he wouldn't drink and then he'd be okay for a while. And then, mm. like, even people who knew him, 
he had a problem with that other than his partner would be like, oh, you want a beer? You know, just being polite. And Joe would be quite good at saying no mm. most of the time. Then he, I think he got to the point where he's like, oh, I can have a drink. And that was the end of it. Like the decline happened quite quickly. It's, it's interesting because... I know that in my first, probably in my first year sober, it is, it's very hard to say no to those temptations. And I think in our society, having a drink is just something that we habitually do. Like, oh, you've had a tough day, have a drink or, oh, you know, let's celebrate, yeah. let's have a drink. I deserve a drink. Yeah. And, and there's so many little lies that we tell ourselves to excuse drinking that you only notice when you become sober and you realize those little lies were gateways to excuse your relationship with alcohol. I think that each time someone asks you another question, it, it kind of wears away at your, your resilience or your ability to say no. I'm very thankful that my partner, my husband was very supportive of me going sober. So if I ever had people doing that or it got too much, he would know we just have to leave. Like this is not a safe environment for me to be in mentally. But if you have someone that's your partner that, you know, isn't supportive of that, I can't imagine how hard that would be to find your strength to say no time and time again. It would really eat away at you. I can, well, that's what I think it would do anyway. So. Yeah. It, it meant that Joseph missed out on things as well. He didn't come to our engagement party. I said I'd have a dry event and he's like, don't be silly. You know, like everyone else <laughs> will want to have a drink. So he missed out on my engagement party, which mm. was quite sad that I didn't get to have him there. But yeah, like, like I respected his decision not to come if there was going to be alcohol there. And for that, I was proud of him, really proud of him. But he knew that that wasn't a mm. safe environment for him to be. So yeah. he didn't come. In the lead up yeah. to his suicide, obviously things got bad again with his partner, I'm guessing. He started drinking yeah. heavily again. Yeah, so he wasn't okay. He was calling me. He was crying on the phone. I tried to get him into, uh, there's a place in Melbourne, I think it's Odyssey House, but there was no availability to even get him in there. And there's nothing in Bendigo and he was worried about his shop and he was worried that if he, if he went to something like that, his partner would leave him. My understanding is that he had separated from her and put he put everything into or most of his belongings into a shipping container and he was looking for accommodation and he, he'd asked if he could come and live with me but Grace and I only lived in a one-bedroom apartment and given some of the things that Joseph had done when he had been drinking I didn't want mm -hmm. and I hate myself for saying this now but I didn't want him in my house um, and then he mm -hmm. He tried to go to a couple of our other siblings' places. It just wasn't wasn't practical. And I know it sounds like we turned him away, but he still at that point had a place to live and he was looking for accommodation. The last conversation I had with Joseph was I told him that I was going over, I always get a bit paranoid about losing the people I love. And so I rang every single family member and said goodbye and told them I loved them in case I died when I went to Morocco because <laughs> I was paranoid. And yeah. I told him that I loved him. And then, you know, we kept in touch a bit while I was away and he said he was doing okay. And he'd promised me that he would never hurt himself. And did he have a history of self-harm or any suicide no, attempts no before? history of no. any other than like oh you know drinking to excess which is a form of self-harm but yeah he'd called me crying and, and said things like he wasn't coping and stuff like that but I didn't think that he would ever kill himself it's not a conclusion that you're going to jump to if that person doesn't necessarily have a history of self-harm or suicide attempts yeah 
when I I came back, it was a bloody mm. like thirty hour flight with layover, <laughs> and got back to Australia on Christmas Eve, and I was really wrecked. And so we didn't go to Bendigo for Christmas Day. We went over to Grace's family in mm. the afternoon, but we were so jet lagged. And the next yeah. day, I was right sitting on the couch writing a shopping list to go get things because we had nothing in the fridge. And I got a phone call from my dad, and he'd said he was on the way to the hospital, um, that Joseph had hanged himself and he was still alive at that point and when he'd been found but he was he was gone like he was he was he you know he was in a coma he was brain dead and um it was the worst conversation I then rang everybody dad rang me and then I rang everybody else and and told them I rang mom and my brothers and sisters and then I had to drive drive to or Grace drove to Bendigo. I remember I was going under the big, you know, that yellow thing um, with the, like, the red match, I call them the matchsticks and the big French fry. Driving under that, I rang the hospital and they put me through the doctor and when they put me through, I could hear my parents screaming in the background and I just said to the doctor, he's dead, isn't he? And he said, yeah, I'm sorry. So that was literally a 160-kilometre drive to Bendigo on Boxing Day, um, knowing that I wasn't going to get there in time the last time I saw him was in the bed in the hospital which was probably the weirdest thing that I've ever I felt like I'd let him down massively I forgot to send him a message on Christmas day to say Merry Christmas um but I know that he knew that I loved him there's nothing I, I couldn't I can't ever undo what I didn't do I just have to think about the things that I did do. Yeah. Yeah, I have no words. I Because I know Christmas is such a hard time of year for a lot of people. I think that we grow up with yeah. this image of how Christmas should be. And I think that it's very it's very fake and it's not, it's not how a lot of people mm. spend Christmas. And I can't imagine, you know, now the pain that you and your family have to go through every Christmas because he's not mm. there and wondering if, yeah if we did this if we did that it's you know there's nothing that you can do now you know to change yeah. anything and it's not that I have to look for the positive in the situation because it's shit no matter how you look at it because I'd give anything to have the 48 hours before he died back again to drive to Bendigo if I'd seen him maybe that would have made a difference you know all those things but there are things that have come out of it I have a better understanding I've like a, this weird sixth sense now, particularly with like young men in their, you know, 20s to 30s, 40s, where I can tell if something's not okay. And I'll ask the question now, like, are you okay? Is there anything that you need? Is there something I can do to help? I also think that I'm more aware mm. of what's going on. I'm hyper vigilant with my other brothers because I, I worry about mm. them. I worry about the mm. impact. I mean, they were quite young when Joe died. I think 24, 21 and 17. No, 18. 18. Because I remember saying Felix turned 18 in September mm. and I remember saying to mum, you did it. We all reached adulthood. And then literally four months later, Joseph was dead. And you don't think mm. when you're a young you're going to lose a sibling or Joe always used to say to me you're the eldest you're going to die first and I'd say good I prefer to die before seeing any of you die and it was just this little thing we'd say as kids yeah of course not realizing that the mm. reality would be much different years later I mean I just 
I can't even imagine going through the same thing. I don't know how I'd even begin to cope with that. After he died, it was pretty awful. It was a pretty, really awful. You know, I was quite alone after Joe died. My partner had to go away for work and you kind of, you, you need to be alone, but you also need to have people around you. And yeah, I, I'm very grateful for manager that I had at the time who really looked out for me and made sure that I was okay and checked in with me literally on a daily basis at work and and then I suppose at some point the healing process began I think one of the things that I guess is talking about it and that's why I talked to you that Mm. night about Joe because like I wish that there could have been more done Mm. I've since done a few things like I've gone I spoke at the Royal Commission into Mental Health and put my views on, like, you know, I guess family mental health. So it was almost like a shift where you focused on putting Mm. your energy into potentially changing the future for other young people who might be experiencing similar issues. Did you do other things to help with the grief? I guess talking at the Royal Commission was really valuable and I, I do a couple of other things as well. I go to a group for people who have lost a sibling to suicide and you would be astonished at the number of people whose stories are literally the same as mine, like a brother or a sister. And mm, It's a common theme, you know, mental health and alcohol conflicting mm. and ultimately ending in tragedy. And I don't know that Joseph was necessarily, in inverted commas, an alcoholic. What he was doing was medicating himself, self-medication. It was to chill himself out. It was to relax. It was to, he wasn't a party animal, you know, like that wasn't what it was. He drank to cope and numb himself. Which I think is quite common, particularly among men. Mm. And obviously since Joseph's passing, you've worked to change that and to try and make a difference within the mental health system. So apart from going to the group and doing Mm. the high commission, you also walked a ridiculous amount of kilometres earlier this year. I did 316 kilometres in October with a group of people who have either suffer from mental illness, have lost a sibling or a friend or partner to suicide. I think we raised over $12,000 for Mm. um, the Black Dog Institute. Jeez, $12,000. That's really impressive. You must be so overwhelmed with how well you did. (laughs) Something that started off as like, oh, yeah, we'll just see if we can raise a little bit of money and then... I walked over three, I think it was 316. Mm. I had hoped to get to 350, but I actually nearly cut my finger off in the lawnmower. <laughs> oh my God, you so poor thing. I was unable to continue doing as much walking as I would have liked to. So that was a bit of pain. Well, I think um, I think we can forgive you for not walking 350 kilometres in a month. You know, 316 kilometres is still, that's ridiculous. I don't think I've even walked that much in my entire life probably I probably have but you know what I mean like that is that is a ridiculous amount of kilometers for one yeah, woman it's really good it's really good and it's definitely something that I will do again it's definitely a an organization who use their funds in a really good way into a lot of research it's obviously a really great charity that is very close to your heart and mm. has a very important mission at the center of it So before you leave us, firstly, I want to say a massive thank you for being on the show, for sharing your very 
personal story about your relationship with mental health and the loss of your brother Joe almost four years ago. What I would love is Mm. with your wisdom and in hindsight, knowing what you know now, what are some things you could recommend to our listeners if they are thinking of drinking on Christmas Day or Boxing Day or they're feeling a bit alone and need a bit of a pick-me-up? What are some things that you would recommend? There's so many things that you can actually do that are better than having a drink. You know, I don't cope very well at Christmas. Yeah. I typically, Christmas Day, I'll avoid alcohol. Like I, I just, um, I think one of the things with alcohol is it, it doesn't, typically won't add any good to a stressful mm-hmm. situation. So if you're already going to have a stressful Christmas or you know that there's going to be people there who might say or do things that are going to upset you or you're going to be on edge, it's best to avoid. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of anyone who's having a shit time mm-hmm. who then has a drink that actually has a good time. Typically it'll go downhill. They're the nights you end up sitting in the gutter crying. There are things that I do around this time of year and my brother's birthday. Um, I have like mm. a list of things that I do. I live near the beach. So on Boxing Day, I'll go down to the beach and I'll piff rocks into the ocean and scream into the wind. It's just something that I do. It makes me feel better. I do things like take my shoes off and go and stand in the grass in the backyard, be grounded, feel the ground. And I know it sounds wanky, but if you actually really feel the ground under your feet and then concentrate on that feeling. Another thing I like to do is lay on my back and look up at a tree. So lay on my back and look all the way up and then follow the branches all the way out to the end and then the leaves all the way in and all the way back out again, all the way back down and then up another branch. By the time you've done the whole tree, you've calmed down and you've lost what it was that you're worrying about. Lay on your tummy and look at like the little ants crawling in the grass. Where are they going? What are they doing? Water your garden. Go outside, spend 10 minutes outside, water your garden, plant some plants, nurture them, have something to look after. If you don't have pets, there's always people at Christmas time at the dog park. Go pat a dog or just the the touching an animal can really make you feel better or volunteer for like places like the RSPCA around Christmas if you know you're going to be alone and not coping. Little things like that. I know that they might seem silly, but I find that they are calming. There's like so many good suggestions in there. I don't even know where to begin. And a lot of things that I've never even tried or thought about. So I'm actually going to test a few of your suggestions out this Christmas, I think, because, yeah, it's definitely going to be a stressful time for me away from family. And so it will yeah. be quite interesting and I'll let you know how I go with them. But once again, I want to say a massive thank you for coming on Becky's Not Drinking Tonight post-drinking. Thanks. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and to be really open and honest about the impact that losing your brother to suicide, I suppose, and and drinking has had on you. Absolute pleasure. And if any of your listeners want to have more of a conversation or are interested, you've got my details. So if they want to get in touch for any of those groups or, you know, want to be involved with the walk next year or whatever, I'm more than happy to, the more people, the better. Get, the, get it out there, get people, get people talking. I think that's important. If you would like to get in touch with myself to have a chat to a leader or would like any further information on the Black Dog Institute, the charity walk or any of the materials we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in contact with us on Instagram at notdrinkingtonightpod. I'm more than happy to pass Melita's details on to you. In the meantime, if you'd like to speak to a professional to get some help for yourself or someone you know who is struggling with mental health, there are many options available within Australia and worldwide. You can contact Lifeline within Australia on 13 11 14 
Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. And there are also resources online such as Beyond Blue or Reach Out that have active chat options if you're not feeling up to speaking to someone on the phone. If you're in America, like I know a fair chunk of my listeners are, you can also contact the crisis hotline number on 1-800-273-8255. Thank you once again for listening to Becky's Not Drinking Tonight, post-drinking with my guest Melita St. Just. If there is one thing you've taken out of today's episode, I hope that it is that you know it's never weak to speak up or to admit that this time of year is hard to cope with mentally. So please take care of yourself and loved ones this holiday season and do not hesitate to reach out if you need help. Otherwise, have a happy Christmas and I'll see you next week for Becky's Not Drinking Tonight in Russia.